Welcome to the podcast, Why Not What If? I'm your host, Bruce Catlin, and we are recording from beautiful, beautiful Taos, New Mexico. So this is the podcast where my guests are doing pretty amazing things. They've asked themselves, why not go for it? What if I didn't follow the rules? Things like, why not quit my job and do what I love? So questions like these and others will be answered by an eclectic array of people from all over the world. And hopefully you too will be inspired to start asking yourself, why not, what if? That's what I did several years ago when I gave up a big corporate job and followed my dreams to come to Taos, New Mexico to be a landscape painter. As a matter of fact, I like to be a hyphenate and I paint while I run and I also write and do a couple of other things. So we'll be talking to some like-minded people and maybe you'll be asking yourself, why not, what if? And we will be right back with our guest, Christina Sparong, world-class welder, sculptor, and influential artist from Taos, New Mexico. Welcome, Christina. Thank you. Thanks, Bruce. Thanks for having me. How are you today? I'm good. I'm great. So the podcast is about how people have designed their lives around a non-traditional life work path. And you, looking from uh, what I know of you in town and how I met you, which was um, when I came to town seven years ago, I said, I want to learn to weld. And I said, who teaches welding? And it's like, Christina, I'm like, oh, wow, she looks like a real badass. I really like that. And her designs are incredible. And you are a badass. There is no doubt about it. Uh, I will uh, tell listeners to, to about your website and where to link to and see your videos. And they are just, I've been really fortunate to see them up close and personal and they are quite spectacular. So tell us, tell us just, tell us a little bit about your background and who you are and what you do. And, and then we'll, we'll get in some more detailed questions from there. Is that okay? Yeah, that's fine. So um, I was born in Sweden uh, a long time ago. (laughs) (laughs) 29 years. (laughs) Yeah, a little bit more than that. And um, that's only relevant because it was a different time. And I grew up in Europe and also all over the world because my dad worked uh, for the Swedish Foreign Service. So we moved about every three, four years Mm. all around. And um, that was quite an education, which I got for free. Uh, And, Mm. you know, only until I was an adult did I realize how special that was. Um, And so I was exposed to a lot of different things, a lot of different schools, a lot of different languages and cultures. Um, And when I decided I wanted to move to the United States, I was 19 and I had mm. never been here before. And I remember coming to the States, I came to New York City and it was like, you know, coming to heaven for me at the time. I was like, oh my gosh, I am in the melting pot of the planet here. Mm. And it was really great. I went to art school uh, when I got into Parsons School of Design in New York and went there and also visited Rhode Island School of Design for a semester, which was also fantastic. Um, and that that was like the first four years in America was kind of the, the get to know the states 
and everything about it. And I'm still here. So <laughs> I clearly liked it. Um, I then college was college just as it is. I was also holding down a job the entire time I was in school. Um, so I kind of had a double life, um, in New York at the time, everyone who worked in the service industry was an actor pretty much. So, um, I had a lot of friends who were actors and, and I just felt, I guess that, um, I needed to travel more in the States and I had picked up welding in New York. I met a fellow named Linus Caraggio, who I credit to be my first welding teacher. And he ran a space, he was a little older than me, so uh, maybe 10 years older than me. And he had gone to the Rivington School for Art in outside of New York. Um, well, it's in New York State, but outside of New York City. And he uh, ran a space on in Alphabet City, <clears throat> Uh, called 2B, so on Avenue B and 2nd Street, which was really trippy back then. And this is New York in the 90s during Mayor Dinkins and Mayor Koch before that. So it was gritty, not like it is today. It was gritty and slightly dangerous and just, you know, it it had it had all the problems in New York that probably are still there, but they're buried somewhere, were uh, up on the surface. And um, it was a good place to to cut your teeth, <laughs> And that his space was crazy. It was just all this welded scrap metal and an entire old gas station down in, in Alphabet City, right near the projects. And it was, it was a rough neighborhood. And next to him was the Collective Unconscious, which was um, like this, this artist theater space, which was kind of crazy. And the New York Poets Cafe, which was across the street. So it was a really happening place. And I was young. I mean, I was 21 or 20, you know, and wasn't quite privy to how cool that area was because the kids that were making that happen were already in their 30s and 40s. Um, so that's that's where I learned how to weld. And and um, and then when I graduated, I just felt like I needed to, to get out. So I sold every earthly possession and bought a motorcycle and ended up going cross country um, and traveling around. I'd never been south. I'd never been anywhere really other than New York and Rhode Island um, and Massachusetts really. So and I um, and I went down south, traveled. Uh, it took me about a year and I landed in LA with my motorcycle and landed at a youth hostel there about a year later and sold my bike. And that was my starting money in my new life. You know, <laughs> I didn't even realize I was writing my investment. I was like, ah, oh, there's first month's rent and deposit. And, and I ended up moving to Seattle, Washington. And there I, I cut my chops in learning just um, more. I became more of an activist there. I, I met a lot of interesting people, ended up squatting in a very political squat and um, working with the displacement coalition around the homeless youth issue there and a lot of abandoned buildings. Now this was also before the boom, like this was Seattle in the nineties, early nineties. So the height of grunge and Nirvana and, you know, all these mud honey and all these like grungy bands that you could just see for three bucks at, a, at a, any like place, right? It was kind of awesome <laughs> to think back. Um, and 
and it was also gritty in Seattle. There were a lot of um, problems in Seattle with homeless youth, especially, um, and police violence around that. Uh, so, I mean, that, that, that carries on to today, but maybe it was a bigger, I don't know, maybe it was because I'm, it, I was right around that age as well in my early 20s where I was really sensitive to the, to these injustices around me. And so I lived there for a minute. Um, and back in the 90s, the weather was kind of rainy in Seattle <laughs> and gray. And I realized that, you know, my productivity, even though I had a great job, I was a curator of this very cool hip space called the Weathered Wall and uh, the art curator there I got a job as. And and um, and I was active in a lot of different organizations and it was it was a good time. And I met long lasting friends there. That's pretty much where all my friends that I still have today are from that from that era of me living in Seattle. But then I. I was working in a youth hostel and a kid practically gave me a Vanagon back then. He's like, here are the keys. Do you want to travel? Here are some keys. And I, I did a trade, you know, for the Vanagon for a tattoo or something at the time and uh, took the Vanagon, sold all my earthly possessions again and traveled, traveled more inland. Like I wanted to go to the desert. I wanted to go to the sun and drove around Arizona and thought that was interesting, but it just didn't really jive for some reason. Then I ended up in New Mexico and I ended up in Taos and I'd never heard of Taos before. And I saw the earth ships and I was intrigued and uh, bumbled around New Mexico for a minute to see if I really wanted to live up here. And then that became pretty clear and went and asked Mike Reynolds for a job. I said, I have some tools. I know some building skills. I know how to weld. He's like, all right, start tomorrow. And next thing you know, I moved to Taos <laughs> and was building earthships. And that was in 96, 95 or 96. Yep. And, um, and then, you know, the rest is kind of history. I just, I kind of loved it here. I loved, I, I love this, this open sky freedom here. I loved the ease, which one could live at the time, especially, you know, it was a smaller place. I don't know how long you've been here, Bruce. How long have you been here? Well, I've only been here seven years and I've just seen the expansion just in that short time. Yeah. Quite a bit. For I sure. My different. I've been dreaming of many of my listeners know of for 40 years I've been trying to come here. Right. I, met I mean, my- I it's funny. It's it's uh, it's always like that. You find a place, and then then as you live in it, you see you see the growth. Which of course, people prior to us moving here also saw. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's. But yeah, I stayed. I stayed here. I bought cheap land out on the mesa. I built my first house, um, mainly being empowered by you know Mike and and being able to just build out of scraps and tires. So my first house was a, was a hybrid of a, of an earth ship with a straw bale. And, um, you know, and I loved that. And before I even built my house, I was, I mean, I was still working in welding in Seattle. I had taken some blacksmithing class. And when I, uh, the late, late Les Michelle, and Christina, he, let me let me pause yeah. you for a second because we just yeah. had a lag. We had a lag in time. You were talking, and I, I want to back up for a second too. You talked about Mike Reynolds. Would you just tell briefly 
how Mike, who Mike Reynolds is and the um, what he offers now as well in the, in the airship community, which is known worldwide. Yeah. So Mike is an architect who um, worked in Ohio as a professor, and he moved out here a long time ago. And with him came a bunch of his students um, who really looked up to him. He's a visionary architect and um, really wanted to build things with the energy crunch in mind, like that we needed to source materials and recycle materials that were not being used um, or that were discarded. Um, and so he, he came up with this concept of building with tires and with cans, um, used aluminum cans. And he built a, a very unique kind of space where um, it uses the sun for passive solar energy. It's off grid. Um, the tires act like mass walls and they soak up the heat for the evening. Um, they're, they're very unique buildings. And he came out here and, and founded a community, several communities actually, where people could buy into and build their earthships and then um, runs a school now, an academy, the Earthship Academy. And people come from all over the world to, to learn about sustainability and sustainable living uh, with recycled materials. Yeah, he's, um, he's quite, it's, he's, he's created quite the community educational venue as well. Uh, I've looked into that as well. And it's, uh, you can tour those areas, listeners, you can go for an Earthship tour. If, if they're open again, I assume they're giving tours now that things have lessened with the pandemic. And I want to ask you before you go on, do you think that traveling this, um, this um, urged itch to travel has, help design the life that you have now, which we'll get into in a minute? Or did you just say, I'm just not going traditional. There's no way I'm going to be uh, a bank clerk which or a waitress. There's nothing wrong with any of those professions. They're needed and they're important. But do you think the travel did it or did you already have it in mind? Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a different lifestyle. I, I don't want to punch a clock. Right. I think... By de facto, by growing up traveling as much, um, we already had that kind of very disjointed lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And so change and cultural change and um, was less scary on some level. And when you're exposed to so many different ways of doing something, I think you you kind of um, inherit some desire or the courage to to be able to do that and not 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 shy away from risk as much you know because there are just so many ways to skin a cat in life and I and that's kind of an awful thing to say <laughs> but uh you know there's many ways heart. to live there are many ways to live there's many ways to do many things and I I feel very fortunate to um to be empowered in that. Like I, I'm not afraid of change. I don't. And I, I also genetically, you know, I'm not someone who likes a lot of stuff. So it's easy for me to travel. Mm. Like I don't, I possess the things I need to work. Um, but I'm, I'm very unattached to, to the things that other people might be very attached to. And I also, 
grew up in a family that was quite financially humble, though we traveled so much. And I, I do appreciate that um, as I've, I've always had a strong sense of like not being in debt. I've never hardly ever been in debt and I um, own the things I own. And so I, I never got tied down. Like I never learned that like you can have anything and then you have all these payments that you're just stuck with and you have to continue, you know, you you can't move. It's like uh, molasses or something when you get into debt. And Taos has this unique place. Taos is this unique place where uh, you, you, you can live like that. Um, there's less social pressure here to, to have it to live a little leaner and yet very free. Right. So um, those were all factors, I think, in me not wanting, or it never even occurred to me. I mean, I've had this artistic drive. I, I want to create stuff. That's kind of how I want to make a living. I mean, it's how I make a living. It's, I couldn't imagine making a living any other way. Um, I'm, I make stuff. I mean, that's, that's my contribution. So, that's, yeah. Uh, well, that's beautiful and very fortunate too, because yeah. you know, odds are, speaking of actors in New York, I was one and I was <laughs> <laughs> not waiting tables, but doing a lot of catering. That's the joke, right? I was talking to my right. neighbor about that, who's originally from New York and you know, you're an actor. What wait, what restaurant do you work at? Um, so that's very, very fortunate for you to be making um, a, a living and making one, not just making a living, but creating wonderful things that benefit the community and the world at large. And I do want to talk to you about that and how you feel uh, what art does for the world and the psyche. So when so you were working at, with Mike Reynolds at the Earthships, and then when did you start really start formulating what you do now, which are these incredible sculptures that are sometimes 40 feet high. And I'll let you explain some of these things and what you do. And the one in Areo Seiko, uh, which is nearby to where I live, uh, that piece is amazing. And we'll, we'll talk about the Heron and the other, you, what you're really famous and known for. So, so you're working for Mike and you're building these homes. So then when did you say, okay, I'm going to I think I'm getting an idea for what I want to weld. Or I want well, to it's interesting because I, I had already had a bunch of shows like in Seattle. I was, you know, I went to art school, so I was already in the art world in that way. I was an editorial illustrator for many years. And uh, I, so I did a lot of illustrations basically that were being published. And I had several shows with uh, 2D work, which was bordering into 3D because I was working with collage. I was doing a lot of work on old um, window panes with found objects and stuff. And then welding came in in New York as well. And that just opened up a whole, whole nother, you know, medium as far as like really being able to build something big. Uh, when I when I then pursued blacksmithing as well, I took some classes in Seattle and then I had met Les Michel here in New Mexico. And that really fascinated me, the molding and, and forming metal hot. Um, so that started, that, that I needed more education in. So really my trajectory here was, um, I was welding and I was actually starting to teach women's welding workshops when I moved here. Um, but I, I basically ran an architectural like fabrication 
shop, which I still do. It's called Spitfire Forge uh, from 96 on. And that is where I cut my chops in, in like really learning how to forge things that I wanted to forge. So I'd made chandeliers and railings, lots of railings and Mm -hmm. gates and beds and all kinds of things, um, to really, you know, everything was a, was a really welcome challenge in, in working with these new tools and having a mentor in El Rito, which helped a lot. Um, and then, then I used these tools then to start really, um, creating bigger sculptures that I had visions about. And I have these visions for a long time, but I just didn't have the tools to make them. And then, um, at some point I did have enough tools and enough wherewithal to, to understand how to build something larger. And then of course, then you need money. And so then came this whole experience of like writing for grants and, and um, so I made smaller 3D sculpture for a while, for, for about a decade at least, in addition to the, all the architectural work I was making my living off. And then I got a, a grant. I got a grant from Burning Man and um, built, a, built the Heron. That was the first real large, I mean, it's large, it's 32 feet. So it's pretty tall <laughs> in the world of sculpture. Nowadays, that's not even that tall, I guess, but... Um, and it's a it's a crane. I was so inspired by the shipyard cranes, and I wanted to build a shipyard kind of crane that looked elegant and um, looks like bird like, like a heron. Um, performers to to play on, like aerialists, and that's exactly what it did. And it went to Burning Man and was selected for the keyhole, which is the center of uh, Burning Man, which was pretty great. Um, so I got a lot of notoriety from that. And that that pretty much propelled me to keep applying and keep building large-scale sculpture. Um, and then I met my partner, now husband, Christian Risto, who uh, worked in uh, LA at the time. And he he had already built major large sculptures. So he came with like a forklift (laughs) and all the heavy tools, which, which just also helped propel that into reality, basically. That's fantastic. And um, going back to that, you, so to, to pay the bills, you were part of your revenue stream was from teaching. And when I first looked you up, you are only teaching women's class. And I'm like, wow, you know, come on. I have a feminine side. Won't you please teach me? (laughs) And then you opened up a class and we came in the winter and I took some of it and I really loved it. And then I think at that time I couldn't finish because I became ill. I was also teaching skiing and I think I was exhausted, you know, the towel shuffle of working so many jobs here. And you are an inspiration to me because you have one, you may work with different mediums and have different uh, clients and, and grants to fulfill, but you are working one. And that is, that, that is the artist dream. And I have to have to ask you speaking about uh, gender is, did you feel at any time that being a woman artist um, you had, were you ever, did you ever face sexism in the arts? as far as applying for grants or? (laughs) Yeah. No, I mean, look, I grew up in the 80s, right? And 
this was the time, like, if you look at old eighties movies, like if I see them now, I get, I get, I'm shocked at like <laughs> the treatment of women, but that is, that is, that was the foundation of like how the world was working at the time. And yeah, of course I work in a highly male dominated trade. I've always been challenged and interested in construction and building and fabrication and fire. <laughs> Clearly I'm like enamored with things that are hot and fiery and um, I was always the only girl, right? So that's just, and I'm not even that big of a person. So I would just disappear in the room. I had to be louder in all other ways. Um, hence, you know, maybe a little bit more punk rock just to even like stick out. And um, yeah, no, of course. And I mean, it doesn't get any better. I mean, here we are in, in 2021 and um, there is still plenty of sexism going on. So it's just that it's, it's changed color, you know? Um, mm -hmm. And as a woman artist in, in the, in the world of making large scale sculpture, I'm by far a minority. Um, it's not even funny. And in the blacksmithing world, there are actually some really amazingly talented women who who are such beacons for me. I'm like, Oh, they're there. I, I see them. Uh, I take classes with them. I, you know, there, we are a little forced to be reckoned with um, not so little, but I, I would say all in all in the world of sculpture, women fight hard. And unfortunately that also creates an atmosphere where women fight each other. Mm. Um, and, you know, men who think that they're, I don't know. It's just, it's just a different reality. And for me, it's always been like, you just got to be really good at what you do um, to stand out. And then, then, you know, the guy who's half as good as you might just talk to you. Um, and that's just how it's been. And that's okay. I guess, I mean, it's not okay for the long run, but this is, this is the reality we live in. So yes, of course, I, I don't think there's a woman on the planet that hasn't experienced that. And yet I've also experienced a lot of support and um, impressed and um, excited. Uh, and so it's, it's, it comes with both those things. You know, I have had a lot of support. And I mean, a lot of my teachers were guys. Uh, so, and, and they were, they looked at me as an equal. So that didn't, that didn't, you know, I've, I've had all those experiences, I guess. So it's not all bad. It's just kind of the reality we live in. It just makes me more conscious. And as I get older, I get more sensitive to um, to the mansplaining and the talk. You know, when you're in a group of guys and they talk over you, I, I get I'm I'm much more feisty now and more self confident now as a working artist than I was before. But I, I feel like you know that that comes with with maturity and age. And I just don't have time to take that shit anymore. <laughs> so, you know, nor, I, nor should it, nor should anyone, whether it yeah. be sexism or racism or any other right. kind of right. um, judgment. And, you know, it's, um, do you think that I imagine it was, it would, because we're all, I think that we're all a collection of what we've gone through, through culture, nurture, parents, traveling, where we live, what we do, who we've met, we're all this, we've come down 
to everything we've gone through in life and how we've taken it in and synthesize it. So you said, I like fire and I, 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 you know, I, I like steel and I'm working this man's world. I've worked in construction and it's, it's just, it's brutal. Uh, you look at any type of construction building in New York or any other city, you'll just find beer cans everywhere. And it's, uh, <laughs> uh, maybe it's different now, but when I worked in the late seventies, when I got out of high school in 75, went in construction, it was just a brutal business. And, um, yeah, <laughs> I, do you <laughs> think, <laughs> I, I do look at you as, um, hot, fiery, feisty yet, but as strong as steel in a sense. I mean, that's my, uh, and when I think of a color for you, I look at this kind of, hot blue effervescent blue and i think you know i don't know christina that well I, too. I don't know if that's an accurate description it's my perception of you uh has that what you had to go through as a woman artist working in a male-dominated uh, medium has that helped I hate to use the pun forge the sculptures that you do now uh I'm sure it has, even though it's not a conscious thing I think of. I just, I don't, um, I don't feel very limited. Like I feel again, grateful for not feeling like, oh, I could never do that. Like I never think that I just, that doesn't even cross my mind. I'm like, if I have an idea and I want to do it, I'll, I'll make it happen. You know, I just feel very empowered so, I mean, I have grown up and lived through enough to feel empowered and be able to use what what I the skills I have, the people I know, um, the wherewithal of, of being a woman in the world um, and in the West. I mean, let's just be realistic. I live in, you know, one of the most amazingly rich and uh, abundant countries on the planet. And I have access to everything here practically right so um i mean that would have probably happened in europe as well even though there are some stricter guidelines and there's more history there as far as like what can and can't be done and living in the west in america is is very liberating because you can really forge your own path using that <laughs> again right you you this is uh this is the wild west. And I, I've, so I've, I've been here long enough. I mean, since the mid nineties, I've been in Taos and I, I feel, I feel rooted in that belief. I think Taos suited me well because I share that, that like almost anything's possible belief, you know, and I, and we're lucky enough to live in an unconstricted world here where one can do almost anything. So I, if I want to build something really big or have a vision of building a space and architecture has always been, you know, my other passion for sure. And had I gone back, you know, I always say that like I should have been an architect mm. because I love building. I just, I, and I love architecture and I love structures that, that contain people and things and, and, um, but it's interesting because my last sculpture, which was the largest one I've built, is called the Flybrary, and it was an enormous human head, and it was a structure you could go within, and within the head was a library. 
Um, and that was, that was really magical to be inside this very strange uh, interior of this planar head with all the bookshelves and the books. And, and, um, and that was really with an open roof because a lot of libraries, they don't have open roofs per se, but they have glass on the ceiling or paintings of clouds because they're trying to evoke this sense of uh, openness and um, endless, boundless possibilities, right? In, in, um, in learning, in reading and learning. And yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed mixing the two, the, the architectural aspects of the last sculpture, as well as it just being um, a standalone like statement. It's a did you get a chance to see that? I did. It's an incredible piece. And where can listeners go see that? I think you have a video piece of that. Is that correct? Um, just I don't stills. have a video. There are many stills. There are many photographs of it on my website, spitfireforge.com. And, um, and on social media, it was, it was, uh, it went to Burning Man in 2019. It was an honoraria funded project. And I had brought the Human Library, which is this fantastic organization from Denmark where you can check out a person uh, it's to kind of um, de-unjudge someone, right? So you check out a person for 20 minutes and get to hear their story. And maybe your preconceived notion about that person has then changed after you get the FaceTime with that person. And um, so we brought the organization over to Burning Man and they trained a bunch of people. You know, Burning Man is fairly diverse, at least in experience. And um, we had a lot of interesting people who ended up being the books for the library within. So we had actual books and then we had human books and it was a real hit in that sense. And yeah, and listeners, that's that's spelled, I just want to let them know, it's Flyberry, F-L-Y-B-R-A-R-Y, a 40 foot tall steel head. And uh, I, I know I've seen it on YouTube when I was doing some more it, background on you and looking at your blog in preparation for the podcast I saw that there and you can see all of Christina's works on her website which is Spitfire Forge at spitfireforge.com and you can look at her work there which I do want to talk about your your artist statement uh, as well you know can I go back for a second would that be all right with you I have a question yeah. for you sure you know I could talk to you for hours um, and I'm really, this is so great. You know, I've known you on and off and now I feel like I'm really getting to know you. So for selfish reasons, I was really happy. Um, you said, I've never really, I have an idea. I'm going to pursue it. I'm just going to do it. Right. I'm going to figure it out. What about the young girl or young student? Doesn't matter what sex they are, but uh, since I imagine you have inspired a lot of young artists, female artists. What about those ones that have an idea? And I, they don't have that, that spunk or chutzpah that you do that gets, I'm just going to go do it. I'm going to figure it out because there's a lot of self-doubt, especially in artists. As artists, we really bear our souls to show the world. I know as a painter, somebody wants to look at my painting, I'm thinking, and now I'm more confident about it because I know where I'm at. Uh, I, I have a lot to learn because I put it off for 40 years. So I'm, I'm really just learning what I do and how I do it. So what do you tell people if you were to, if you were to put a coaching hat on, right? 
or maybe even not a shrinks hat, but a, but a coaching hat. How would I get started? Because for you, it's second nature. It's like, what are you talking about? Just go do it. But how do you tell somebody? It's like you know, you see this. It doesn't. You see this burning passion in in her and a, and a young artist. And but they're not doing anything. They're afraid because it all comes yeah. down to fear. Well, fear. Yeah. Them? What would you tell them? Yeah, I don't know if I'd be such a great coach, really, but <laughs> fear fear is real. I mean, it's real and it's good to to have some fear, I guess. I feel like the the culture here in America is very fear-based. Mm-hmm. And and you that is one thing you don't see so much when you go elsewhere. So travel is a booster in like wow, people are not afraid. Why are they not afraid? Like they should be afraid. Why are they not afraid? You know, Mm. Um, it's just a bigger, you know, I feel like we can get quite myopic and self-defeating. And of course I have that as well. It's not like I'm a go-getter 24 seven. I go through periods of self-doubt and what am I doing? And, (laughs) (laughs) but um, I think, I think um, if, if one can, move the lens back a little from being so focused in on yourself and realize that it's a precious time. You know, we, we're not here for that long and many things can happen. So what are you going to do with your one precious life? Right. I mean, it's a, it's, it's kind of, you, you have to answer the call. If you have a calling, if you have a talent or a vision, and that's really like, you know, that's what you, that's, that's your contribution. Um, You should honor that, I guess. It's, it's the honoring of and trusting of what you are wanting to put out in the world in the precious few years that we have to, to put that out in the world. And the world will keep going when you're, when you're not here and you know, what are you going to do? I, I look at it for me as it's, it's just my duty and my job. This is what I can do. I, I'm not a great cook and I'm not a great, you know, I'm definitely not good at accounting. I'm not good at math. You know, there are so many things I'm so not good at and they, they don't interest me, you know, but the things that interest me and the things that I can do, I can make things and I love building things and I have visions and dreams of things to build, that's my contribution. I'm going to make that happen in the world because it makes me happy and and I feel fulfilled as a person that way. So I guess there's something about like not getting too caught up in what everyone else says you're supposed to be doing and what you think you should be doing. And, you know, and if it's a financial constraint, which often it is, you know, the undermining carpet is like, well, I can't afford to do these things. It's maybe you can't afford not to do those things Mm. because in the end you know it's really about what you put out and how you live your life and you got to be happy and you're happy when you're doing your life's work whatever it is and that that really beautifully said and do you think that being happy obviously makes the world a better place because if we have a lot of unhappy people part of that and i agree with you it's very interesting the 
the contrast that Americans are in general, pick yourself up by your bootstraps, we're going to be solely independent. And of course, it comes with good effects from that and then also not such great effects from that when we don't, <clears throat> excuse me, when we don't ask for help. Uh, I agree that Americans in general, um, as opposed to other parts of the world, don't look at death and realize that death is coming to us all. There's no escape. So what are we going to do with our time? We avoid it. And going back to what you talked about earlier, we consume. And if we consume, we can we blunt those that, that part of that area that I think for me drives every decision I made, not only how I was uh, brought up, but also that I know that there's light, uh, the light at the end of the tunnel is getting narrow, more narrow as I get older, you know, now be, me being in my mid sixties. And um, I think that you're, you're right. It's a responsibility. It's a, if you, if it's, um, you know, it, for me, it's the universe saying, Hey, this is yeah. this is how you can make the world a better place. This is your inborn um, skills and talent, if you will, and you've nurtured them. And then go put it out because resistance. I forget the author who wrote the book, uh, the 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 War of Art, and he talks about um, oh, yeah that great book. Is that resistance is the greatest killer of ideas? Yeah. And how many times have people sat on a bar stool and said, in the morning, I'm going to I'm going to go audition or I'm going to go make that sculpture painting. And then they get up and they go, I can't do it. I'm too afraid. Yeah. Which I think is uh, so for you. It is an inspiration. You know, there will be people I've coached a lot of people, you know, my former life as a coach and I've done a lot of business and um, personal coaching over the. So this was a trick question. (laughs) 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 <laughs> uh, no, not really. I mean, I don't, you know, my job in life is to help people become as happy as they come, they can. I want to create for me, this is not my interview with you, but I want to create things that are beautiful. But first, it has to be for me. And you know that I well, you may or may not know I, I run to paint. And the reason I run to paint is to get out of my, my, my critical mind. Now there's other ways to do that. <laughs> exactly. That's a great way though. I mean, that's a healthy way. It's a healthy but, way. Yeah. And it also does add um, um, uh, different ways to apply paint. But anyway, I want to, I would just want to get back to you because I know we're end, coming to our end of our time and I don't want to hold you up for, for too long. Going back to talking about your calling and what you do and if you're happy and it helps make other people happy how do you think overall art and all its mediums, um, how does it affect the world? How does it make the world a better place? I can tell you that I learned a long time ago, someone said to me, a great actor, British actor is no longer here, said the arts holds up the mirror to yeah. society and it shows them all the beauty they are, but all of the ugliness they can be as well. So what do you think your art in particular does um, in society, in the world? How does it affect change? And then uh, art in general. I know that's a real broad question. And if you want to just keep your answer to how you think your art affects Yeah, I can, I can do a, a broad brush stroke on that. I mean, okay. it's a reflection on, you know, it's a social political, emotional, and visual reflection of the world that we live in right now, right? 
we are we are digesting our experience our human experience on the planet and spitting it back out in one form or another with the medium that we've chosen to to use and i think yeah, we create beauty, but we don't have to create beauty. Art doesn't have to be beautiful. Art is a reaction to being human. And that's a really wide brushstroke, but, and it's very important because it is what stays. It is what lives on. We're just, we're just here for a minute. And then, uh, you know, there's some other people, it just every time period has, has its people who whose job it is is to reflect that period of time on the planet and what it means to be human and living together and with all the amazing and horrible creations that we come up with and yeah I think it's it's just uh it's so absolutely necessary and it's the thing that informs us of the past and possibly can inspire us to create other things in the future. Well said, you know, you and I can go out 10 minutes from where we live. We live in different parts of the area, but we can see petroglyphs that yeah. are really yeah. a thousand years right? older. So they're still there affecting people. People come from around the world to see this. What is this need, this inherent drive for humans to create, what, where did where does that come from? That we have to create. I know for me, I have to create in some yeah. way. What is that? What does that drive from? Have you ever looked into that? You know, it's it's this need to put forth uh, a feeling and emotion by controlling things in your environment. Um, I, I I think of you know uh, Goldsworthy is it Goldsmithy or Goldsworthy Goldsworthy who who designs all these things in nature these beautiful you know spirals and um, he takes he he sees nature a certain way sees it as a medium like with the colors and the shapes and the textures and then he creates these visual landscapes as if we don't already have amazing visual landscapes, but it's, it's a pause. So instead of, you know, you're looking out in a prairie, like now you see this other sculpture there. It, it gives you pause to take in the rest of the world that you're looking at. Um, I mean, the need is, is inherent. I think in all of us, we're all creative to some extent. And then it's whether you take it on as a profession, in which case it becomes a greater responsibility in education and understanding and taking responsibility for what you're putting out into the world. Um, and of course it has to fulfill, you know, you're doing it for yourself, but you're also, I mean, for me, at least when I'm working with this medium, it's going to outlive me by far. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I'm very conscious about the medium itself and, and the, how, how steel is made and the impact it has, you know, on the earth, it's mined iron and mined carbon through coal and limestone and, and all the alloyed steel or alloyed metals, you know, the, this is, it's, it's, 
it's not a gentle medium to work in. There's responsibility there to use it correctly as in, you know, not just wastefully um, and use it for something beautiful or at least something to, to, to show the world how I see the world um, right now. What, what is, what is it that's really getting under my skin right now? You know? So that's, that's the responsibility part. You say in your artist statement, uh, and I want to talk about that because I'm the same way, and I'm going to just read this right from the website. As a kinesthetic learner, I have to delve deeply into the components of whatever medium I choose to express myself with. I use metal, fire, movement, sound, and scale to provoke a reaction or an interaction, which I think great art does. Words that sum up the intentions of my work include relevance, reaction, curiosity and awe. And I would say as an audience member, it does all of that. But going back to being kinesthetic learner, I'm the same way for me to sit in a classroom and listen to somebody talk to me is just, I, I retain very, very little uh, of that. So that you have this need to have this hands-on experience. And speaking of education, are you still offering classes to people, uh, to the general public? Oh, absolutely. Um, I have been holding uh, some welding classes through UNM Taos, which of course have been put on hold, uh, but will come back, I'm hoping, in in shortly. <laughs> and I'm also teaching at Vista Grande High School. I teach welding, the welding program there. And I teach at my studio. Um, and I hold both women's welding workshops, uh, as well as, you know, non-gender specific workshops. Uh, so those are, those are my contributions to try to empower other people to learn. I, I love teaching I learn so much when I teach <laughs> and um, I really enjoy it. I enjoy understanding how people absorb this information. And as a kinesthetic learner, of course, all my other senses are very tuned in and I need to feel and smell and hear things to understand how they are in the world. And that is also how I teach, um, which I think is helpful because there's many of us out there who who can't just sit in a classroom and read a book and then somehow understand it require more. Uh, they require more than just reading about it. Right. They, re they really do require all the other senses to, to be on board. Yeah. It's been a while, but it was a really good class with you. Okay. So ladies out there, young women, uh, well, how, how young will you take uh, a student? How, how old do they have to be? Uh, it it kind of depends. I mean, 16, I think would be, you know, um, the, the adult classes just to be, you know, they, they are super voluntary, you know, the, the classes through school, sometimes people are taking them for credits and, and the, there's an interest, but maybe, uh, it's a different level of interest. It's just different when you're younger, I think. Um, so the classes are slightly different, basically, is all I'm trying to say. The adult classes are, are for adults who are really interested in taking it. And we can we can do a deep dive in those classes. And then the the classes for younger people is more of an experimental, like, here's this cool thing that we do. Do you want to try it out? Um, so 
slightly different classes. All right. And, but and UNM people, would be probably where the younger, younger people could take classes through. Well, I didn't know that. I want to come take that class now. I mean, that's 10 minutes away from where I live. So, okay, you've right. heard it here. The gauntlet is thrown down to students 16 and above in general who want to learn everything about or the beginnings of welding and get to work with this brilliant dare I say, genius artist, Christina. And you can find out about all that about on her website to learn um, about expressing themselves and gaining self-confidence. And I always thought about, maybe it's been done because you've been here a lot longer, a school like that where people can get grants or sponsorship through a foundation to be able to come to Taos and learn and then maybe go to you and then maybe go to Rich Nichols for painting or myself or whoever. Has that ever been done here? Is that something you have, have you ever thought about that? Uh, I have, I was thinking of doing a residency program just because I know um, as a mom and a working artist, how time is so precious. And um, I thought for other artists, it would be fun to come out here as far as bringing inner city kids out here. Um, I think there are youth groups and they're usually based uh, around outdoor activity just yes. to um, kind of heal the, the big, you know, the big ravine between inner city kids and mm -hmm. nature. Um, Rocky mountain and, youth Corps and Susie yes, Fury and Taos fit. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, but bringing kids from elsewhere, who, especially inner city kids, you know, um, as far as bringing inner city kids for creative purposes, I, I don't know if that exists yet. And that that's an interesting concept um, to do that for sure. You know, the, the thing about art and the thing about uh, blacksmithing, for example, and welding is, you know, it's it's being pushed as a trade of course, which it is. Um, and welding as a trade is quite successful and also has a good presence of women. Um, and that means, you know, you, you get certified in all kinds of welding and you take all these exams and you, um, you can then teach or you can go out and weld pipelines and work for industry, uh, including, you know, uh, alternative energy industries. It's not all oil or anything. Um, and, that's interesting, but as far as the creative, the creative aspects, I feel like there's less ways to access that other than possibly through art school, um, which isn't accessible to many either. So I think it's important to, to offer classes. And I do know that like in these trades that are non, they're not, they're not like the trades that young kids necessarily look to unless they're drawn towards working with their hands or something right um so we're we're kind of in a i think in the long run these trades are slowly disappearing unfortunately and that's just because technology comes and and replaces it in one way yours you know painting will never disappear i i have a hard time imagining that but there's competition there with digital media oh yeah and uh and you know and for me, working with metal in the fabrication shop, as we do with old machinery, like the machines that we're using are from the 50s and 60s, the lathes and the mills and the forge. I mean, how old is that? You know, the, these are old tools. Um, 
that that's not that's around now and I'm grateful for that um, I'm not sure that younger kids are as smitten by that because it doesn't reflect the world that they are growing up in um, you know I didn't grow up with a computer and you didn't either it sounds like based on your age so you know that came to me in in high school and in college but my kids growing up with digital technology from the get-go and so his experience of the world is very different already and and that's all I'm noticing is although I think what we do is is amazing and of course so important I think the actual way we do it the mediums are are a reflection of our time and will be different and will be different for the next generation I don't do you ever feel like you're never going to have enough time before you do pass on to create everything you want? Of course not. <laughs> of course not. No, I'll, I'll go down with all my new ideas, of course. <laughs> but you know, that's, that's, a, that's a good point. And I, and I just wanted to stress that ideas come from downtime. Ideas come from just sitting and spacing out. Mm -hmm. I think what robs our ideas is spending time on digital media, like on computers and, you know, multitasking, or I really believe that like taking a walk and just clear, or, like you do, you run before you paint, you just get those endorphins going, you get it out of your system, you clear your mind and then let, let, let it fall in, you know, and it will fall in if we don't preoccupy ourselves every two seconds. So this idea of just sitting still, is very important. Do you do you um, take a hike near the gorge or or meditate before you work, during your work or after? I do both those things, not necessarily before my work, but before I think of ideas. And I have trained myself to have a lot of my ideas just before I fall asleep or when I'm sleeping. I try to figure them out. It's kind of a fun thing for me to do because I can create in my sleep, but. You know, and then if I if I'm lucky enough, I wake up and I write down the idea and then I revisit it in the morning. But I yeah, it's so necessary to not to just I mean, that's part of the creative process is to create time <laughs> to just be and sit and distill the world around you. If you keep busy all the time, yeah, you won't have any ideas because you're so busy engaging. You have to disengage, I think, to some extent. What are you working on now? I working on now. Um, I'm trying to give myself the space to come up with some ideas. I'm actually painting. Also, I started painting during COVID because um, working in steel is expensive, and we were trying to conserve money. We um, we have a few coals in the fire here, uh, and I have some ideas for sculpture. But the the funding for sculpture right now is a little tenuous still I think last year was hard for a lot of organizations um clearly since there was no revenue and so you know it's it's all it's all interconnected when there's revenue then they can give out money to people like me when there's no revenue there's no money so um so I'm just kind of letting ideas fall down and paying attention to what what the ideas that kind of keep coming up and that I think are valid and good. I feel like COVID changed my perspective. I don't know about you, but it, it did as far as um, feeling like this is, 
you know, I, I was living during the Cold War, of course, but I was so young that I don't think I had a full understanding of the dangers we were in at the time. And I feel like this is the first global thing that affected everyone. Um, and it happened so fast and it, it made me feel like uh, more, I, there's an urgency now that I didn't feel before. And of course, I think that's healthy because I think the next, you know, the next thing that globally is gonna really kick us around is the environment and uh, the global this is what I'm trying to say. And I, you know, I'm raising a kid who's going to live through that. And then his kids hopefully will live through that. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I guess I'm just, I'm just allowing, this is my time to, to see what bubbles up. Cause I haven't traveled. I haven't left house in forever. I don't know. You probably are in the same boat. I haven't been landlocked this long in my adult life ever. Um, where I haven't left, you know, and I, and I'm really like, I can't wait to go, but it feels irresponsible still because just cause we're over the, you know, bend here in Taos, there are parts of the States that aren't and definitely parts of the world that are still deep in COVID. Right. So um, we're not quite there yet. So I'm just trying to bid, just like let it bubble up. I don't know what else to do. <laughs> well, that, no, that's wonderfully said. I, I do have to admit that doing nothing is actually doing something. Meditating is doing something. Walking is doing something. You do have so much to offer you. I want to thank you for being such a, a, a wonderful member of the community. You've, you, you aren't in your shop going, I'm going to make and I'm not going to share. You share. So I thank you for that, for contributing so much to the community for so many years, long before I ever got here. And again, we're talking to uh, Christina Sporong. I hope I hope from just this interview, one person will come and take one of your classes and they'll change their lives. Oh, I love it. I love it. I don't know how much it changes their lives, but it's definitely a um, it, it seems like it's a course correction for a few, for sure, where they come in and and they're like, why am I doing what I'm doing? I mean, the level of divorce in the women that take my class. <laughs> oh, really? Do tell. <laughs> it's, I mean, that's just between you and me. But I, there's, let's say I have these national workshops and people come in from all over the country. I haven't done those in a while since I've had Kodiak. But the, <laughs> yeah, out of the 10 women, two would write me and they're like, I left my husband the minute I got home and I moved to this place I really wanted to be. And then I was like, yay. Awesome. Yes, <laughs> so that's it. You know, there is a course correction that happens and I'm not so sure it has to do with welding. Maybe it's more about that first step of getting out of your reality and then trying something that you're totally new at which is so good for us to do, right? Makes and us then, vulnerable. Yes. And you, you're you not good at it in the beginning. And that's that's great. Failure is like one of the priceless gems we have. It, you know, it's not fun. But at the same time, I don't know. I wish society wasn't so harsh. I think failing is is just part of the... It's like you learn so much from that. You learn more from failing than you do from success. So in my opinion. Agreed. And uh, I, I, I just, it's cool. Anyway. So yeah, a lot of people come and they, 
they they change a little for sure. That's <laughs> We're fantastic. <lost. laughs> so I can say, come to Christina's class and you'll get divorced or lose your partner. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's going to be a big selling point for the <laughs> the, divo- the divorce artist. <laughs> well thank you again so so much you know you are we are so fortunate to have you the world is a better place because of you and your work no you're sweet Uh, christina's website at spitfireforge.com and learn about her and everything else and her classes maybe if you don't live here you'll come and take one of her classes i'm sure she would welcome you and I thank you so, so much for talking to me and with me and sharing. Well, thank you so much, Bruce. It was a pleasure. Yes, as always. Well, I hope that you enjoyed today's episode of Why Not? What If? And if it has inspired you, let's hope that you start asking yourself, why not? What if? So if you or someone you know would like to be considered as a guest on an upcoming episode, please write to me at Bruce, why not me at gmail.com. And I hope you'll tune in to next week's show. Thanks again for joining me.